Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to the Middle East Center for the fifth of our weekly seminars. Tonight, it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Anne Saade from Dartmouth University. Professor Saade took her BA and her PhD in political science from Harvard University, where she is now the Joel Parker Professor of Law and Political Science Emerita at Dartmouth College. She taught there from 1984 to 2017. Indeed, it was at Dartmouth we first met. So it's a particular pleasure to be welcoming Professor Saade back to the Middle East Center and to Oxford. She's currently writing a book about the Middle East under the provisional title States of Disorder, Explaining the Vicious Circles of Middle East Politics. And you really have your work cut out for you. Tonight we will be the beneficiaries, the first to hear the first fruits of Professor Saade's research. Her subject tonight De Gaulle in Beirut, the Shahab experiment. And I would like you all to join me in giving Professor Saadi a very warm welcome. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Eugene, for that lovely introduction and for inviting me. Thank you, Kaya, for everything you did to organize. It's not every day. Since I'm by training a Europeanist, I'm not actually used to having my name pronounced properly. So <laughs> that, was already, that was already a pleasure. Thanks for coming on a Friday afternoon and listening to me talk about Lebanon, a complicated little country in a strife-torn part of the world. My talk today is a first version of the fourth chapter of an unwritten book. Indeed, the chapter is unwritten, not just the book is unwritten. Perhaps later we can talk about the broader project, which is informed by my interest in institutions, leadership, and strategies of political change. I want to compare a Lebanese president, Fouad Shahab, up there in Mardras Square in Beirut, to a French one, Charles de Gaulle. If Lebanon is a complex little country, France is another complex little country. Well, complex, not so little. And Europe, like the Middle East, has seen its, its share of strife. Both Shahab and de Gaulle attempted to turn deep national crises into opportunities for deep political change. As two generals who led their countries as civilian leaders, they had other traits in common. But it's their role as crisis leaders and aspiring change agents that interests me. Both made it their mission to change the rules, the actors, and the policy parameters of their respective countries. That is, each was determined to change how the political game was played in his complicated little country. Neither one used the occasion of an existential threat or the difficulty of affecting change as an excuse for establishing a dictatorship. Indeed, in the end, each man walked away from power, shocking supporters and opponents alike. They achieved different degrees of success. De Gaulle was more successful, but then he got two tries at this game, and Shahab only took one. The bigger questions this talk raises are when does a crisis become an opportunity for change and renewal? And if crises do sometimes occasion significant and intended change, what are the implications for the ex post arguments that we make about continuity in situations where change did not occur, since that's often what social scientists do? So looking beyond the comparison between de Gaulle and Shahab, I would like to invite you to consider with me 
what this story of these two leaders tells us about politics in the Arab Middle East and about how we, we academics, we citizens of countries that played important roles in the Middle East, think about politics in the Middle East, often influenced by that old joke about the scorpion and the camel. In 1958, Lebanon and France were both in crisis. This is a slide, actually, just to, to get us to think about change. Um, this guy, I assume you all recognize. Um, this many people in the room probably are too young. This is George Wallace. So what I'm trying to suggest in this slide is, is you know, there are two ways of thinking about Trump, at least. One is to say he's the product of deep trends, deep things in American political history and social history. And the other is to say, no James Comey letter, no Donald Trump president. So we're wrestling with issues like that all the time in the social sciences. 1958, two countries in crisis. Charles de Gaulle, who had failed to win approval for his innovative constitutional ideas in 1946, rode the Algerian crisis back to power 12 years later. The Fourth Republic, created after the liberation, in 1946, was exactly as de Gaulle had predicted it would be, overloaded and paralyzed and in crisis, metropolitan France was heading towards serious political violence, as these headlines suggest. My Parisian buddies, they were not my buddies at the time because I was a little thing in 1958, but the people who became my Parisian buddies were convinced that fascism was about to triumph in Paris. They formed the Club Jean Moulin and prepared to go underground. But fascism didn't happen. Other things happened very fast. And here's what the chronology looked like in France in May 1958. On May 13th, there was an insurrection in Algiers, which at the time we were in the middle of the Algerian war. The people who wanted to keep Algeria French turned out in the streets. So there was an insurrection in, in Algiers. Two days later, de Gaulle, who was just finishing his memoirs in his, on his country estate, announced that he was available should anyone wish to give him a more prominent public role. Two weeks later, on May 29th, the paratroopers uh, threatened to jump on Paris. The Fourth Republic sitting president, René Coty, decided that if choice was an overt coup or a, cover or a sort of disguised coup, he actually preferred the disguised coup under the guy who, after all, had led the Free French during the war, and he announced um, the appointment of, of de Gaulle. On May 31st, two days later, de Gaulle formed an interim cabinet. By June 3rd, he had won a vote of confidence uh, in the parliament and announced that a new constitution would be put to a referendum vote. Since de Gaulle's constitutional ideas articulated in a speech at Bayeux on June 16, 1946, in the middle of the previous constitutional debate, were a matter of public record, it didn't take too much guessing on the part of the public to know what kind of changes he would propose. On June 4th, a couple days after this happens, de Gaulle went to Algiers, where he delivered a brilliant and perhaps unintentionally ambiguous speech to a cheering crowd of people who wanted Algeria to remain French. Je vous ai compris, he said with, you know, appropriate arm gestures. I under, I've understood you. 
people like me have spent a long time trying to figure out exactly what he meant, you know, whether I've understood you. They, they took it to be, I've understood you and I will do, I will achieve what you want. And later on, as his own policy preferences shifted, it became unclear what, when that shift took place and whether he was basically saying, I've understood you and it's tough luck for you. But at any rate, he was in Algiers. On September 4th, a constitutional document was on the table. September 28th, there was a referendum on an 81% participation rate. Eat your hearts out. On an 81% participation rate, that constitutional draft was approved by 83 to 17%. On October 4, the new constitution was promulgated on October 5th the Fourth Republic was history. Also in October, the part, the, a new party was created, not by de Gaulle, but by people around de Gaulle who understood that a new party would be an essential instrument for effective rule. It was intended to upset partisan patterns and to organize political support for de Gaulle and for the new regime. On November 20th and 30th, there were snap legislative elections they were held under a new electoral law. They produced an assembly in which de Gaulle had a majority of 402 out of 576 deputies, which was their intended effect. In December, de Gaulle was elected president under the old rules, so indirectly. And I would suggest that that's not bad for six months. That's really quite a record. And I'm omitting policy initiatives. I'm only talking about changing the game. I'm not talking about what he was doing in substantive policy terms. De Gaulle's new constitution was based on a highly articulated understanding of French history, a history that he said had made France unlike Britain, saddling efforts to create stable representative regimes in France with a fragmented polarized partisan landscape and setting up a pendular swing between ineffective parliamentary regimes and illegitimate authoritarian replacements. De Gaulle's constitution, without creating a fully presidential system like the United States, moved away from the parliamentary model. It changed the relationship between the executive and the legislative branches of government, vastly strengthening the executive branch, the bicephalous president and prime minister. The new arrangements also did away with proportional representation, which was the electoral law used by the electoral system used by the Fourth Republic in favor of a two-round single-member winner-take-all system that rewarded large national coalitions and bipolar competition and not probably coincidentally also rewarded the right since the left was divided with a strong communist party flanking the, the socialists. More broadly and in stages, de Gaulle's reforms changed the way parties approached competition and the way voters participated in politics. There were now referenda. There was the, by, after 1962, the president of the republic was directly elected and so on. The political crisis continued in France because the Algerian War did not end until 1962. De Gaulle navigated it using the new tools his institutions and his unique background gave him. Thus he hung on, surviving repeated assassination attempts, 
moving himself and the country toward acceptance of Algerian independence. But de Gaulle did much more than just hang on, much more even than end a divisive war and deep colonial commitments. He built a constituency and he built legitimacy for the new political system he'd created. He tweaked the arrangements, for example, with that crucial amendment I just mentioned that provided for the direct election of the president, since he knew that no future president would benefit from the kind of extra-political historical legitimacy that he enjoyed. He led his party, the UNR, do the partisan work for which he harbored considerable contempt, not much patience, and really not much skill. Then, six years after the end of the Algerian War, came another crisis, the extraordinary student worker strikes of May 1968. France shut down, literally shut down for a month. The regime seemed to falter. There was credible talk by credible people, Pierre Mendes France among others, of a return to a parliamentary republic, that is, of a return to the old rules. But the regime recovered long enough for de Gaulle to win parliamentary elections, to propose reforms, to lose a referendum vote, and to pack his bags. He left, but his constitution remained in place. Success is a relative thing in politics. It's an elusive thing. And the causal change behind any outcome is never simple and always hard to establish. But I think it's fair to say that de Gaulle's experiment was more successful than Shahab's. Here's my unscientific yardstick. De Gaulle is memorialized everywhere, notably in the square where the Arc de Triomphe sits. The constitution he imposed, while modified, is still in place. And de Gaulle's footprints are, in fact, quite visible in policy areas as well as in constitutional arrangements in present-day France. Shahab, in contrast, got a stadium in his hometown and a nasty stretch of highway in Beirut. The Shahab's strategy also entailed very perverse unintended consequences to which I'll revert later in the talk. De Gaulle took a crisis and used it to great effect, winning a kind of Tocquevillian bet. Shahab handed, I would argue, a comparable crisis situation was far less bold. Okay, so this is the circle thing is kind of if you read, if you've read Tocqueville's wonderful book on the old regime and the French Revolution, that's kind of his sense of how causation works. It looks like, you know, history causing history. And you obviously can't, de Gaulle's real quarrel with France was that he couldn't change its history. But he understood that you can change the rules. And if you can change the rules and then hang on long enough, keep the rules in place, They change behavior in the short term. Behavior eventually changes values, expectations, and mores. And then the the system is indeed self-perpetuating. So the trick is to intervene um, and and then to hang on. This is the bet that he won. It's a tough bet to win. But this is the bet that that we're looking at. Now let's go to Shahab. He was elected president of Lebanon by a vote of parliament on July 31st, 1958. So we're talking, you know, same year. Like de Gaulle, he came to power at a moment of existential crisis for his country. At the time, he was commander of the Lebanese army. If de Gaulle's project was France itself, 
Shahab's project was independent Lebanon's national army, and that difference may actually turn out to be fairly significant. But in 1958, Lebanon itself was threatened. In the absence of an existential crisis, Shahab would not have accepted presidential office. He would not have accepted civilian office nor would he have been asked. By July 31st, the Lebanese crisis had been at a full boil for several months. Maybe less of a, of a difficulty in Britain. In the States, if people know that there was a crisis in Lebanon, they think it was in the summer because that's when American Marines landed. Of course, it's always all about us, right? But actually, the crisis is, is already pretty hot in 1957 in Lebanon. So by, by July 31st, here's what it, what it felt like locally. It was six months after the creation of the United Arab Republic, in fact created on February 1st at the behest of Syrian officers who thought that Nasser was the solution to their problems. Lebanon's relationship with Syria, the separation, their separation having been a product of French rule, had been a hot political issue in Lebanon throughout the 1950s. Important Sunni politicians, especially Tripoli's Rashid Karami, whom we'll meet again, had repeatedly argued for economic union and had suggested that political union might follow. The PPS, a fascinating, highly organized, and frequently violent little party whose founder has my name, but I am, as I always say in Beirut, I'm not related, <laughs> uh, had been summarily executed in 1949 after allegedly attempting a coup. That party favored the creation of a pan-Syrian political entity. On the other side of this argument about the relationship between Syria and Lebanon, Maronites in general and Pierre Jamal's Falange in particular tended to get quite exercised by any suggestion of closer ties between Beirut and Damascus. More than any other issue, the Syrian question put Lebanon's Arab identity on the table. Were the Lebanese Arabs, were they Phoenicians, or were they irreducibly Lebanese? This had been a thorny issue in 1943 when the so-called National Pact compromise between, crudely speaking, the Maronites and the Sunnis allowed the independence coalition to come together and to uh, encourage the French to leave. So this had been an issue in 1943. Many people in 1958 and later, when the Palestinian issue would pose the identity problem again, thought the question was worth fighting about. Okay, July 31st, his election date, was three months after the assassination of an opposition journalist in Beirut had sparked an anti-government uprising, the so-called mini-civil war of 1958, during the course of which some 3,000 people were killed in a very mini country. So if you have a mini civil war in a mini country, it's not so many. One point, let's, roughly speaking, there were 1.5 million people in Lebanon in 1958. Very roughly speaking, underestimating, let's say there are 300 million people in the United States. 300 is a nice multiple of 1.5, and you can figure out what the same casualty statistics would be in the United States, and you won't think it was a mini civil war. So there was significant civil violence in Lebanon in 1958. The crisis had to, and the government, just as significantly, the government lost, rapidly lost control of much of the country. 
The crisis had two non-structural underlying causes, in addition to the major fault lines built into the Lebanese polity, like the identity problem that I just mentioned. The first cause was the sitting president, Camille Shamoun's pro-Western anti-Nasserist foreign policy. Pro-Western anti-Nasserist foreign policy. Nasser had used his enormous prestige and popularity to pressure other governments in the area to stay out of the Anglo-American-sponsored Baghdad Pact in 1955. Nasser saw the pact as a new effort at imperial meddling. The United States saw Nasser as a troublemaker and a potential tool of the Soviets. Shamoon, and especially Charles Malik, his foreign minister from 1956 on, saw Nasser as someone who wanted to eat Lebanon and therefore its Christians for dinner. Shamoon's ostentatiously anti-Nasserist positions flew in the face of Nasser's immense popularity and of the basic neither-nor understanding on which the Lebanese polity was based. That understanding stipulated that Lebanese governments would be neither too cozy with the West nor too cozy with Arab sister countries. Okay, the second problem in, that brought about fighting in 1958 was Shamoun's increasingly explicit determination to succeed himself as president, constitutional requirements to the contrary notwithstanding. Uh, you were not allowed to succeed yourself as president under the constitutional rules agreed in, in the 1940s. The first president had caused a crisis by doing this. Shamoun had been on the other side of that debate, um, had made all sorts of statements that came back to haunt him. Then when he was president, he tried the same trick. Didn't go over well. Okay, Shahab's July 31st election was a long two weeks after the bloody coup that overthrew the Hashemite monarchy in Iraq, two doors away, so to speak, from Beirut. This event, together with the turmoil in Lebanon itself and ongoing Western worries about developments in Syria, had the Sixth Fleet plowing the waters off the Lebanese coast and had prompted the almost instant landing of Marines in Lebanon and of British troops in Jordan, literally as the blood was drying in Baghdad. The tense regional context was inscribed within a broader international context shaped by the superpower rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. Come November 1958, so a couple months after the period we're talking about, Khrushchev would demand that the United States, England, and France pull their troops out of West Berlin. This was a pretty tense time, pretty tense time all around. And for Lebanon, as for France, it was more than simply tense. But importantly, Shahab did not become president of Lebanon on, let's say, August, August 1st. So he's elected on July 31st. He does not immediately take office. He did not actually become president until September 23rd, when Shamoun's term expired. Given the importance we're assigning to crisis as a possible source of opportunity, timing, the chronology of all these things, timing is very important. Almost two months elapsed between Shahab's election and his inauguration. And the election itself indicated that the crisis had already become more manageable than it had been in the weeks preceding it. Respect for legal norms may have been a plus, though legality in Lebanon is typ typically has m many meanings. Return to relative calm may also have been a plus. 
especially given Shahab's reluctance to engage the army in domestic political disputes. But while Shahab waited for the clock to run out on Shamoon's presidency, others, including Shamoon, but not, but others as well, took initiatives that reduced Shahab's margin of political maneuver once he did take power. On August 25th, the leaders of the anti-Shamoon opposition met and issued a manifesto demanding not just the withdrawal of American troops, which was actually a fairly consensual demand, but the formation of a cabinet composed solely of ministers drawn from the ranks of the opposition. And when I say opposition, just remember, there were, there were 3,000 bodies on the ground. So it's, we're, we're not talking about Her Majesty's loyal opposition. We're talking about, the op- about sides in a civil war. So the anti-Shamoon opposition said, we want a cabinet that has only our guys in it. Especially at the elite level, the opposition to Shamoon had spanned the Christian Muslim and especially the Maronite Sunni divide, but the call for an opposition-only cabinet inevitably excited fears among Shamoon's non-elite and even his elite Maronite partisans. Popular support for the rebellion had been strongest among urban and rural populations poorly served by Lebanon's so-called merchant republic and squeezed by the rising cost of living um, in the late 1950s. So it combined Arab nationalists plus traditionally organized urban and rural people led by Zuama, whom Shamoun had attacked as feudal and had tried to disempower. In other words, real economic grievances were part of the explosive mix that fueled the rebellion. So Shahab's apparent willingness to rely on its leaders to the exclusion of Shamoon loyalists had multiple implications. 1958 is a very, it's a very complex fight. And when these kinds of fights occur, obviously a lot of grievances pile up on the opposition side. So there were in fact, crudely put, sort of class, class implications in the, or certainly socioeconomic, there was a socioeconomic story to be told in the 58 conflict. Once there was some danger of an opposition cabinet being appointed, the sides became, became fluid again. Okay, Shamoon, Shamoon, if you look at his supporters, he had partisans in the more modern sectors of society, but his organized support, as opposed to just his supporters, his organized support was limited to Pierre Jamal's Kataeb and the Pan-Syrian PPS. Uh, normally arch enemies, but allied in this fight because both were hostile to Nasser. There's never anything straightforward about Lebanese politics. Two days after the opposition manifesto, the, the Falange, Jamal's outfit, and other pro-Shamoon elements put Shahab on notice that they would not tolerate a government that included opposition ministers. Okay, so now you've got the two sides saying, do this or else, they want opposite things done. On September 9th and 10th, 21 pro-Shamoon deputies created a new political party, Um, or a new, more accurately, political group. And then on the 19th, they elected Shamoon to be its leader. The National Liberal Party, we'll call it the PNL. During the summer, Shahab had hoped that perhaps Shamoon could be induced to take a nice long trip abroad 
Indeed, the American embassy, occasionally helpful in these situations, had cabled, the, uh, had cabled Washington to ask if Eisenhower could possibly invite Shamoon to come visit Gettysburg. But it didn't happen. So Shamoon now, not only is he in Beirut, but now he has a new political toy with which to make, to make mischief once his term is up. And then on September 19th, the Kateyev journalist Fuad Haddad was kidnapped and killed. And he was not nicely killed. He was kind of ickily killed. The next day, three days before Shahab took office, the Kateyev called for a general strike, launching what would become an ugly, semi-sectarian, three-week counter-revolution, also violent. Momentum had been lost, and when Shahab, in fact, appointed an opposition-only cabinet under the Tripoli leader, Rashid Karameh, he simply compounded his difficulties. This was this is this would be a long argument, but I would this was not a strategic decision. This cabinet was not a strategic decision, it was a tactical decision, and it was a bad one. By the end of October, his most promising window of opportunity had probably closed. Shahab had not spent the previous eight years on his country estate reflecting on Lebanese history as de Gaulle had spent the 1950s. He was concerned with the integrity of the country as a country during those years, but his primary concern was the integrity of the army. His overall analysis of the crisis ran something like this. First of all, neutrality was basic to stability in Lebanon. So foreign policy neutrality was basic to stability in Lebanon. This was really not rocket science. It was empirically pretty obvious, no matter what Shamoun and Malik thought about it. Later events would demonstrate that allowing Palestinian forces excessive freedom of action would be just as fatal as the Shamoun Malik stance, but that wasn't the problem in the 1950s when the dominant issues were Cold War politics and Arab nationalism. Cold War politics and Arab nationalism were more easily externalized than would be the later Palestinian problem, and Shahab, once in power, immediately and rather successfully externalized them. No Lebanese government could appear subservient to American policy or could distance itself ostentatiously from Nasser or more generally from Arab nationalism without tearing Lebanon apart. Shahab got this. Okay, secondly, in his analysis, Shahab also believed that Nasser appealed to ordinary Lebanese not because anyone really wanted Lebanese affairs run from Cairo, but because underserved populations in which Muslims were overrepresented felt disrespected and because opportunities and resources were unfairly distributed in Lebanon. The geography of the revolt, that map that I had up earlier against Shamoun, supported this interpretation. The real question, not limited to this moment or this place, is whether this kind of socioeconomic grievance can be answered with socioeconomic policies. Has anybody in the room, this is mostly to students, but has any, have, have, the, have the younger people, is Samuel Huntington's political order in changing society a category for anybody? No. Problem here is you've got a set of socioeconomic grievances 
and you've got a president who says, I'm going to, I'm going to address those grievances. And Huntington in the late 1960s waved his arms around and said, if you address socioeconomic problems in a developing country, you, the first thing you're going to do is actually raise the level of demand in a situation where there's a, an institutional deficit. And the result is going to be the risk of further disorder, and you're going to be in trouble. So this is the problem that this, this part of Shahab's analysis, which is a crucial part of his analysis because it's, it's linked to what he actually does, this is what's in play here. So we'll come back to that later. Okay, and then the third part of the analysis was that the political class in Lebanon was worthless. Corrupt, self-interested, petty, bunch of irresponsible blowhards, people incapable of building either a nation or a state. You'll say, well, it's a typical military officer's view of civilian politicians, in this case, wasn't far off the mark. In Shahab's view, what was true of the political class in general was particularly true of Camille Shamoun. Shahab's analysis was all true as far as it went. But the hard nut of the crisis was Lebanon's ineffective, corrupt political sphere, the core institutions, policies, and practices of the merchant republic, the system rather than the people who ran it and milked it. The system was the real pact that underlay, the Lebanese, that underlay Lebanese political life between 1943-46 when independence was achieved and 1958 when the Civil War took place. The economy, the state, and the electoral practices that ensured that neither the economy nor the state would be reformed at the price of perpetuating a partisan landscape in which organized parties had no chance. If you look at the economy, it was outward oriented and based on services. It was very centered on Beirut. It was run by and for elites who wanted deregulation, but actually didn't believe in markets. It's a real mistake to think of this as a liberal economy in any meaningful sense of the word. The state they wanted was minimal, minimal to non-existent. Imagine a state that doesn't have a central bank, you're looking at Lebanon. Imagine a state that doesn't keep statistics, you're looking at Lebanon. And the electoral system, which is often discussed, came with, so seats, parliamentary seats were allotted by sect in a six to five Christian Muslim ratio, but each sect was specified. So, you know, six to five doesn't begin to get at what was going on. And then secondly, uh, major offices were allocated by sect. So the president was always supposed to be a Maronite and the prime minister was always supposed to be Sunni and the poor Shia got the speakership of the parliament. The precise provisions of the electoral system changed quite frequently, sometimes in important ways and almost always in ways intended to favor the incumbent president. But the basic logic remained the same, and this was true uh, even of the changes that Shahab made in the system prior to the 1960 elections. The good intention behind the electoral system was to force interconfessional alliances. But the bad effect was to discourage the development of political parties based on programs and principles. The rules stunted and distorted the few such parties that existed while promoting all forms of parochialism. The associated result was a fragmented parliament that loved to talk but was unable to act, along with ephemeral coalitions whose logic was often hard to discern. 
Put a different way, the effect of the electoral system was to perpetuate the grip of bosses, feudal and otherwise, and oligarchs, and the politics and policies they favored. The broader results, not very surprisingly, included rampant corruption, inefficiency, social injustice, and a fragile sense of national identity. These results were compounded by the effects of assigning top offices by sect. The result here was to sharpen intra-confessional tensions and rivalries, inducing yet more emphasis on clan and personal ambition and encouraging outbidding both behind the scenes and on the streets. Maronites jockeyed with Maronites for the presidency. Sunnis tried to position themselves for the premiership. In other words, the heart of Lebanon's problems was indeed the confessional basis of the institutions, but not quite for the reasons normally given. Not just for what it encouraged, but perhaps especially for what it precluded. Not because it exacerbated latent sectarian fears and tensions, but because it prevented the organization of a modern party system and because it both corrupted and emasculated the state, preventing the state from becoming the focal point for loyalties or a promoter of either equality of opportunity or result. Two ways of th there are two ways of thinking about the impact of this system. First, you can think about the impact on the time horizons and calculations of political actors. Political actors in Lebanon typically don't think strategically. On a normal day, they can't think strategically. They can only think tactically. And they think small because the system discourages them from thinking big. The question was, would Shahab as a charismatic outsider in a crisis situation, depart from this pattern. Secondly, the main characteristics of the Lebanese political system include extreme fragmentation, endemic volatility, and opacity. Observationally, here's what you would have seen. Unpredictable changes in alliance, in, in political alliances, total disregard for programmatic coherence or even pragmatic specificity, a parliament that talked but abdicated real lawmaking and policy to the executive, and underneath it all, an expanding, mobilizing society with increasing needs and aspirations. So fragmentation, volatility, and opacity. This is great if you have no problems that only public action can address, but it's very unfortunate if you do have problems, and who doesn't? That was de Gaulle's point. Lebanon, like the Fourth Republic, had problems. The dysfunctional character of the Lebanese political system was not a great secret. Political scientists warned that it could not ensure long-term stability. Journalists criticized it. Even politicians attacked it. So what would Shahab do? The confessional system institutionalized by the French under the mandate was considered untouchable, and perhaps it was, even though technically the parliament had voted it out of the electoral system in late 1952, without effect, of course. But still, the fact that they had done it suggested that there was wiggle room. So perhaps it was vulnerable, but Shahab did not, Shahab did not go after it. I would argue that, you know, when something doesn't happen, we say, well, he couldn't have done it. But what do we mean when we say that something is politically impossible? How do we know? What we know is what happened. We know that even when Shahab took what appeared to be aggressive political measures, he was always playing political defense. He did try to give Lebanon a state worth the name. 
I'm not trying to minimize his reforms, which were very interesting and significant. But he didn't give his reforms a political base. He didn't create or cause to be created a party that would push his program. He didn't create a coalition on which he could rely. Increasingly and inevitably, the Dizian Bureau, the intelligence branch of the army, was the substitute. It's significant that the Economic Planning Authority that was the signature initiative of his regime, it usually goes by its French initials, uh, IRFID, was run by a French Dominican priest. And indeed, the top three aides to Shahab were all French. And his, and much of his staff was drawn deliberately from people we would think of as technocrats, people who were outsiders in all sorts of ways, people without a political base, people who did not engage in politics, though they later engaged in politics. They did not, they, they were not political people when he appointed them, and that was pretty much why he appointed them. He appointed them because they were technically competent, they were interested in working hard and not playing games, which is what he thought politicians did. So ultimately, he didn't have enough imagination or he didn't have the right kind of imagination to secure even the kind of relative success that de Gaulle achieved. The short version of this story is that whereas the centerpiece of de Gaulle's reforms was a new constitution and a new electoral system, the centerpiece of Shahab's reforms was administrative reform and a valiant push for economic development. In other words, Shahab tried to change the results without removing the causes, whereas de Gaulle went after the causes with the results in each case about what you would expect. Shahab, rather like Barack Obama, hoped his policies would speak for themselves. Instead, too little changed while the beneficiaries of the old system felt threatened, threatened by the reforms that were enacted and frustration mounted among the underserved. And all the while, the confessional framework remained in place. The threatened elites were primarily Maronites. Those with the most need and the weakest claims on the system happened to be Shia and Palestinians. Palestinian militants would soon push Maronites, Shamoon among them, over the edge. Shia grievances mobilized first by Musa al-Sadr in the movement of the dispossessed would later contribute to the rise of Hezbollah which would become the most powerful organization in post-civil war, or at least post-Syrian, well, post-occupation Syrian and Israeli Lebanon. It's not really what Shahab had in mind. So that this was a turning point, in, one, that it was a turning point in modern Lebanese history, and two, that he could have, he could have gone after the confessional system if he had wanted to. And this was his coalition. In the 1950s, there was a very strong reformist wing in the Falange. They, had a, they, they wanted to be a modernizing force. They wanted actually to be an interconfessional party. They had a social democratic tendency. And these guys served in the cabinet. But they served as individuals and they were not, he didn't try to, there was no effort to build a political base as opposed to using people. And so in the end, nothing came of it, really. And Shahab himself did indeed stun everybody by saying, you know what? Constitution says I'm not entitled to another term and you guys are a bunch of losers and, and I'm done. Coalitions that we think 
are natural are actually subject to being upset. As a, as a political scientist with closet tendencies toward history, I am attracted to arguments about path dependence. And I think the problem with path dependent arguments is that you're always explaining why what happened had to happen. And actually what happened didn't have to happen, at least not always. And I think this is one of those situations.